Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I'm a director at Softway, a business to employee solutions company that creates products and offers services that help build resilience and high performance company cultures. I am joined today with my president and CEO, Mohammed Anwar. Hey, Mo, how's it going? Hey, Jeff, and hey, everyone. And Frank Dana, a director at Softway as well, and a good friend. Hey, Frank, how's it going? Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. Yeah, good to see you, man. Hey, guys. Nice hat. So each episode, we like to dive into one element of business or strategy and test our theory of love against it. And today, we have an amazing opportunity to speak with Dan Eds. For 25 years, Dan has been a practicing management consultant working with state and local government, healthcare, K through 12 education, higher education, nonprofits. He is the author of two books, the first of which is Transformation Management and his most recent, Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance. His latest book demonstrates how elite organizations are revolutionizing the practice of leadership, recreating the world of work and setting new standards for employee engagement and customer value. Dan, welcome to Love as a Business Strategy. How are you today? I'm tr- I'm terrific and I'm absolutely delighted to be with you. Awesome. Uh, if you're not familiar with the show, we do open before we d- dive right in with some icebreaker questions. And the fun part about this is I never know what they are until this very moment. So let me just <laughs> crack this digital envelope right now. Frank, <laughs> looks like your name is on the top of the list. So you're first. Me? Yes, Frank. Would you rather travel the world in a year on a shoestring budget or live in luxury in only one country for a year. It's very interesting. I would rather travel the world, but live on a shoestring budget for for that year for that year. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather see way more places and, and, you know, enjoy the actual space that I'm in and kind of find the beauty in those areas without having to just, the creature comforts don't matter as much as the as the opportunities to learn and grow in those different places. So that's that's what I would do. Well, I, I've traveled with you, and I feel like you'd, I feel like you'd miss. I feel like you'd miss some things. Oh no, I definitely without... would. <laughs> okay, if you can't say the Ritz Carlton, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, Mo, Mo, you're up next. Would you Would you rather live without internet or without AC or heat? I would probably be okay living without AC or heat, mm-hmm. but I need internet. <laughs> I I like the question, but when you really think about it, it's a no-brainer. I think, uh, yeah. I don't know how we would survive without internet, but fair enough. Dan, your question: Are you ready? Yes. Would you rather be Would you rather be able to teleport anywhere or be able to read minds? Oh, teleport anywhere or read minds. I think I would choose the teleport anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, I'm not really sure, but I like the idea of being able to go someplace. Yeah, you could bring Frank some amenities when he's roughing it on his year. There you, go. There you <laughs> go. Bring the mini soaps. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's I, uh, I am in a normal year, I'm on an airplane at least two or three times a month, if not more. Mm. And um, in the last 12 months, I've been on one airplane. So I am ready to go someplace, just about any place. Just let me go. (laughs) Perfect. Agreed. Perfect. So let's jump right in. And Dan, obviously, I'd just like if you could open up with just tell me a little bit about or tell everybody a little bit about kind of your background you know, your, what you've been doing for those 25 years I mentioned in your intro and how you kind of came to the book. Give us the, yeah. the, the setup here. Okay. So uh, 25 years, I've been a practicing management consultant. Um, you know, I've worked with, I don't know, probably a couple hundred different organizations in various capacities. Um, and there was no, you know, one single moment in time, but there were a couple of events, a sort of coalesced into an observation, which was basically there's something going on 
around the whole idea of leadership and the experience of employees where there's a disconnect. Um, just one real brief story. I, I had just finished a project for a large state agency. Um, this agency um, regulated 450,000 healthcare providers. And uh, I was done with the project and it, it was very successful. There was light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, um, they were by any measure a mess. And um, I was ready to, I was having my last meeting with the deputy director. I was ready to walk out the door. I had my computer bag in hand. And my hand was, was, you know, on the door. Before I walked out the door, she, it was almost like, uh, you know, we were in church and she was in, in confession. It was that kind of tone. And she said, you know, I don't even tell my friends where I work anymore. And I turned around and I said, why is that? And she said, it's just too embarrassing. And um, that was one of those things where, one of those conversations where I thought there's something going on. And so eventually I began to ask the question, how do elite organizations, high impact organizations, organizations that consistently perform at a high level, not for a year or two or three, but for four, five, eight, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, how do they approach the practice of leadership? Hmm. And um, that got me into a, a, you know, a research project and eventually a book that's um, uh, darn near obsessive and has taken over my life. And I don't sleep very well most nights because I wake, wake up at three o'clock in the morning thinking about it. Sounds familiar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Muhammad's just like, oh, okay. So there's someone else. That's, normal. That's actually normal. Great. It's good to be validated. <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate your confirmation. <laughs> so, I mean, tell us about the book. Tell us, tell us about this, the, the main kind of theories behind it and what you've learned in it. Yeah. Well, there, there was a subset to my question of how do, you know, high impact organizations approach leadership. Um, and the sub, the sub question was, I was, I wondered if there was anything that could be identified as systemic, that there was a system to the way they did leadership. They didn't just tell people go out and lead based on your own personal values or any way you wanted to. You know, I was, I was looking for something that said, okay, is there a system? And of course, then the first thing I had to figure out was, well, what is a system? And then what is a system of leadership? And if I saw one, how would I recognize it? Um, and then that led into, okay, where do I find these organizations? And what am I looking for? Um, I eventually avoided, um, actually, I, eventually, I, I intentionally avoided uh, technology firms and public sector organization, public organizations, excuse me, because there's there's just too many other things going on there uh, that would impact the employee engagement and the employee experience. So I really I really centered on healthcare because the data on those organizations is is, is public and it's quite abundant. Um, ended up uh, that led me to other organizations in manufacturing um healthcare other other healthcare education um i had amazing conversations with two senior officers of the united states army um and when i knew what i was looking for i began to see evidence of a system every place i looked um high impact organizations approach leadership very much like they were designing a system and they start out with the purpose. Uh, and, and you guys know in technology, if you're designing some kind of a technology system, you have to first figure out, well, what's it going to do? What's it, what's, what's the purpose behind it? What's the output? And um, another quick story, a uh, 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 hospital CEO had asked me to come in and help him he said, I want to design a model for doing leadership. And so when I met with him, we talked about it. And I said, um, yeah, I said, you know, Eric, uh, it's great. I'd be happy to help you. But fundamentally, I believe that leadership is more about a system than a collection of individuals. And the first thing we're going to need to know is what do you want the system to produce? And he looked at me and he said, that's exactly what I want to do. And uh, no exaggeration, <laughs> I walked out the door and I'm thinking to myself, now, how in the heck am I going to do this? 
but it uh, it turned out to be um, hands down the most uh, profound, the most impactful uh, engagement in 25 years of consulting. Can so, you then for the sorry? You're good. No, Mohammed, take it, take it. For the audience purposes and for my knowledge, what is your definition of a system? Just so that ah. we're aligned to it. Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a perfect question, and there are several definitions. Um, but one of the more common ones uh, actually comes out of um, the book written by Danella Meadows, uh, Thinking and Systems of Primer, where she defines a system as um, a system will take a handful of key elements, organize them in a specific way to produce a purpose. Um, other people have built on that definition to say uh, a designed or intentional purpose. Um, uh, there are other definitions out there, but many of them, you've, you know, have those same basic elements, a core set of resources or elements um, that interact in a very specific and defined ways that they produce a, a common purpose or output. Okay, so and by do you, could you could you give examples of resources inside of that system that could be considered sure. resources? Sure, sure. So that actually that took me quite a while to, to 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 figure out, but organizationally, every organization, your organization, my organization, it doesn't matter if it's the United States Army with, you know, two million active and reserve duty personnel, or you know a a, a school an elementary school with 75 leaders. Every organization is comprised of people, mm -hmm. money, using that term in the broadest sense to include plant and equipment. It's basically everything that money can buy and specialized knowledge. You guys are in, in, in business because of your specialized knowledge. I'm in business because of my specialized knowledge. So what I discovered is that high impact organization and this is um, uh, probably one of the, the biggest takeaways from the research is that average organization understands those resources as assets that need to be managed, which is a nice way of saying controlled. Right. Hmm. High impact organization sees those as resources that can be developed for ever increasing value. Mm. So example, um, uh, you know, how do we look at people in our organizations? Are they an asset? Right. We talk about people being our most important asset. Well, that word asset sort of means and suggests something. However, if we say they are a resource, well, we can develop resources to increase more and more value for our customers and so what I found was that organizations that have that perspective, they are more inclined to see people as a, as a complete resource. In other words, they are not just about developing, you know, professional skills and technical skills, but they see value in developing the whole person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of one of the case studies is a, is a large hospital of like 10, almost 10,000 employees and they see people as a resource and they intentionally underscore that word intentionally go about developing not just you know better doctors and nurses and med techs etc um, but they actually go about developing a more self-confident workforce because they've figured out that if they have a workforce that's self-confident and you know feel empowered personally they're more inclined to speak up when they see an error or a potential error. They're more inclined to give their opinion, their observation, and how to improve a system or a process. And oh, by the way, they happen to be, uh, for the last eight or nine years, uh, ranked as one of the safest hospitals in America. Some have suggested one of the safest hospitals in the world. And that may not sound too much to you and I, until we realize that accidental and avoidable deaths in hospital hospitals is one of the leading causes of death in America. Yeah, uh, we believe that maybe COVID has changed those numbers, but even before pre-COVID, 
the deaths at a hospital, uh, avoidable deaths, were almost like a Boeing 747 crashing every day. Mm-hmm. That's the number of deaths that could have been avoided at a hospital uh, yeah. system. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I last week I was actually talking to a hospital CEO, and um, and uh, just you know just for confirmation, I asked him about that, and he said, "Unfortunately, that is the reality." Yeah. So it sounds a lot like what 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 you're talking about about kind of building these systems and talking about self confidence and empowerment and helping people. I mean you're talking about actually saving lives. Like when mm-hmm. people feel more confident in themselves and their team members, and they feel like they can bring their full selves to work. And we approach that like when we're translating it for our audiences as, as developing and being focused on developing culture, mm-hmm. right? Being very intentional about the culture you're producing inside of your organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering how do these organizations rally leaders around this purpose? Right? Mm-hmm. How how do they how do they bring leaders from a variety of different perspectives, from lived experiences that they've had elsewhere, from other organizations they've worked for? How do they bring them in and and create a sustained purpose that people begin to emulate? Right. Yeah. Great question. Um, and, and you know what I saw is is you know how do organizations do that and then they sustain it for five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty five years? Right. Uh, and that's where the idea of a system comes in. So if you read the literature on, on leadership and, 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 and a lot of literature on culture, what you read is about how, um, you know, follow this leadership guru or these principles or these laws and you will be a leader others want to follow. Or it's about, you know, personal fulfillment, uh, be the best you can be. As soon as we start talking about a system, though, now we have to start thinking about not being the best you can be and being the best I can be, but being the best we can be. So, um, you know, one of my one of my question marks when I began to see this was, does, the, does this idea of a system and a systematic way of approaching leadership, does it make a difference if it's a small organization or a large organization? So, um, Frank, to answer your question, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Actually, I'll merge two little stories into one. I'm ready. Okay. Yep. So, um, I'm having a conversation with um, a guy by the name of General Barry McCaffrey. Uh, you still see him on, on, on the news every once in a while. He's a, a paid analyst for uh, issues of national security. General McCaffrey, when he retired after 32 years, was um, one of the most highly decorated generals to ever worn the uniform. Um, during the first Gulf War, he was the commander of the 24th Infantry Mechanized Division. Um, for us non-military types, um, that's he had a workforce of 26,000 soldiers under his command. Wow. Um, and uh, when he retired, he went on to serve in the Clinton administration as a cabinet officer. And uh, I asked him, I said, how does the Army approach the subject and the practice of leadership? And he immediately said, we practice servant leadership. And that was not a surprise. But then he began talking to me about love and about what it, about serving under, uh, in this particular case, General Norman Schwarzkopf in the first Gulf War. And he said, uh, General McCaffrey said to me, quote, he actually loved me, end quote. Wow. There we go. And, and um, yeah. to be honest, I didn't hear him say that in our conversation because I was, I was so focused on him <laughs> and, and not wanting to you know, make a total fool of myself. But when I was reading the transcript, I, I saw that and I thought, he actually said that. <laughs> and, you know, put it in, in the context, here you have a guy, he holds three purple hearts for wounds received in combat in Vietnam. Schwarzkopf uh, held at least one purple heart for wounds received in combat. They, um, both men have led men into combat. They, you know, they, they've seen the requirements of leadership in the most extreme cases. And here's a general um, openly 
talking to me about love and about the, the role of love in the United States Army. Um, I was frankly blown away. Hmm. So combine that with another story. I'm sitting in an office of an elementary school principal. Um, she's a principal of 450 ele elementary school children. This school in five years went from the lowest performing school to the highest performing school in a district of 25,000 students and 18 different elementary schools. When I asked her about her approach to leadership, she initially said, leadership? I don't know anything about leadership. And then I said, well, if there was one or two words that you might use to describe leadership, what would they be? And she said, well, this won't be very popular, but love and grace. And um, I'm thinking to myself, well, that's nice. <laughs> you know, she's got 450 school kids that are streaming yeah. in into Have the – yeah, and, and, you know, and, and the front door is right behind her office, and they're streaming into the school because it's early in the morning. And, um, you know, I'm thinking, well, how nice. You know, these kids have a principal who loves them. And uh, she read my mind. She said, that's not how I'm thinking. That's not how I'm using these words. She said, I use these words because I know they challenge me that I can have a, a difficult conversation but do it in a spirit of love and grace. She said, it means that I can push my people and hold them accountable and hold myself accountable, but do it in a spirit of love and grace. Mm -hmm. And then the next breath, she's talking to me about collaboration as the path to academic achievement with her students. And um, it was kind of, I, I, I saw the connection between what she was saying and what General McCaffrey had said. And um, uh, so when I walked out the door, I said, oh, by the way, don't be too embarrassed about these concept of love and concepts, concepts of love and grace. I said, I had prior conversation, a full colonel of the United States Marine or United States Army, um, member of the U.S. Special Forces, U.S. Army Ranger, tell me almost exactly the same words, and a four-star general, certified war hero, holder of multiple Purple Hearts, tell me almost exactly the same thing. So, Frank, long-winded story, but this is how they do it. They don't rally anybody. Mm, they don't yeah. use inspiration. They don't use, you know, rhetoric that's just you know sort of inspires us yep you know that that's good for a while but after a while it gets weary and uh and what i found was that every one of these high impact organizations start with what's the experience of the workforce that we want that we want our employees to experience what do we want our our employees to experience on a daily weekly monthly basis has nothing to do with inspirational rhetoric and motivation. It's what do we want them to experience? Because it's that experience that will keep them and get them engaged and keep them engaged and keep them around. So that's the starting point. From there, um, every one of them had, they did it in different ways. But they all said in one way, shape, or form, okay, if we want our workforce to experience what it means to be empowered, what kind of behaviors do our leaders, do our leaders need to model every day so that our employees can experience empowerment or team or love and grace or collaboration or uh, respect or relationship. Um, and in fact, what I found was that these high impact organizations put more value and emphasis on behaviors than they do core values. Very cool. There's a whole lot more behind, behind it, but that's, you that's should, the essence. You should, take, you should take your headphone mic off and just drop it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> essentially well, but don't, please don't do that i don't want to be i don't want to break the heads the headset equipment but so I that, there's this man oh, okay. I'm yeah just, that was I'm awesome just responding i'm actually <laughs> reacting that was great what a great settle, settle down frank settle down <laughs> <laughs> so dan there's this saying that we uh we've come up with that software um you know where we're talking about culture 
And, you know, you must have heard of Peter Drucker's saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right. And we say that behaviors eat culture for lunch (laughs) because it starts with behavior. You cannot build a culture Mm -hmm. that you want to aspire, whether that's culture of high reliability or like Mm -hmm. for hospital Mm -hmm. systems or any of those things without the right behaviors that are embodied by the leaders and every single individual. And it's the leader who sets the tone for those behaviors that everyone follows or right. embodies and witnesses and starts practice on their own. Yep. Yeah. But so, some, so the ahead. question, so the question, Mohammed, and I love that observation. So the question I would put back to you, mm-hmm. I'm happy to answer the question if you want me to. <laughs> sure. I want Mohammed to answer the question. I don't even know what the question is. <laughs> so, 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 so take that. And what mm-hmm. do you do? How do you embed that idea that leaders must model behaviors to 2 million active and reserve duty personnel in the United States Army mm-hmm. or an elementary school with 75 educational leaders? It starts with servant leadership. And servant leadership in the simplest terms is you put the needs of others before yourself. Mm-hmm. And when you are able to be selfless, and come from the angle of you're here to serve others, not mm-hmm. lead, but mm-hmm. serve, mm-hmm. then that care, compassion, love, endearment for your team, for your coworkers, makes you behave in ways that give them that experience. Right. And so that's how a leader must start. But if a leader is in a position of leadership for the wrong reasons, which is power, authority, mm-hmm. uh, selfish gain, um, and, and those kind of, uh, you know, uh, satisfying factors that some leaders may have, and they're in a position of leadership, but maybe not are truly leaders themselves. Mm-hmm. That's when you see the wrong type of behaviors of control, yeah. micromanagement, lack mm-hmm. of empowerment, Fear. and so forth. And so what you're describing to me is a high impact organization. You've taken it to the extreme, right? You mm-hmm. talked about military, you talked about hospital systems. If you think about it, these are all high reliability-based organizations. For them, reliability comes down to the lives of people, whether that's in the military or the hospital system. Great observation. And and so your high-impact organization is that, it's that much of like, you know, emphasis is that it it involves the life of people. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm gathering from your research, where you seem to have focused on those high-reliability organizations, is that when leaders are embodying the behaviors of a servant leader where they put the needs of others before themselves and create that environment of love and endearment, mm-hmm. those organizations have seen an uptick in safety and you know reduced the loss of life or mm-hmm. accidents and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and empowerment and so forth. Mm-hmm. So uh, is that correct? Yeah, there, there's more to it though. Um, mm-hmm. So you asked me originally, what is my, you know, what definition of a system am I looking at? Mm-hmm. Uh, or am I, am I using? So, you know, I said, you know, the, a system takes a handful of key elements or resources and organizes them in a very specific way to produce an output or a purpose. So um, what I found was that there's three, uh, the uh, resources organize themselves through th- three things. Um, we've mentioned one, which is behaviors. The other one is rules, and the other one is routines. So um, how does this work? So I I actually asked the General McCaffrey, I said, how does the um, United States Army reinforce um, the the servant leadership among its its officers? And um, he gave me three ways. Um, I'll give you one. Um, He said... um, when a helicopter, when, when a team is going off uh, on a mission and they're boarding the helicopter, he said, by rule, not by suggestion, but by rule, the highest ranking officer gets on that helicopter last. Hmm. It's, it's largely symbolic, but it's, it's reinforcing the whole idea. The highest ranking officer makes sure that his team is in the safety of that helicopter before him or her. And then there's the counterpart to that. By rule, the highest ranking officer is to is the first 
to get off that helicopter because they're putting themselves in harm's way first. Now, Army guys have told me, well, there's some logistical reasons for that. I said, yes, but that's how the Army trains its leaders. It's not a suggestion. Um, Simon Sinek wrote a book, a terrific book, a few years ago called um, uh, Leaders Eat Last. And uh, it's a great book. It's I thought it was one of the best books on leadership around <laughs> until my own, maybe. <laughs> uh, yes. But, you know, he makes the point that in the United States Marine Corps, the rule is leaders eat last. They make sure that, you know, the highest ranking officer goes through the cafeteria chow line last. What I think he does not mention, I've, I've read the book a couple of times, and I think, I think I've got it correct, correctly. It's a, he, he describes it as a suggestion that eater, leaders eat last. In the Marine Corps, it is not a suggestion. It is a rule. And as soon as we start defining rules and routines and behaviors that will take these, you know, handful of resources, produce a specific purpose. Now we're in the business of talking about a system, a system that is defined, that's measurable, that's articulated. And oh, by the way, you can improve the system if it's not performing the way you want it to. So I have a question to ask. When you think about it, these systems are still defined by a person, by a human. So I, I, I wonder if these systems can truly be instituted if the leaders who still have to make decisions around these systems are not embodying the right behaviors or mindsets. Yeah. So I, I, I suspect that it's not that simple to just take a system and institute it. It has to go through first the leader regardless of uh, they have to embody those behaviors and mindsets in order for the system to be successful because if we put in these systems and the leaders at the top are not embodying the right behaviors and mindsets you may not even get that system yeah Yeah. so we still have to start with the people aspect yeah yeah yeah, yeah, um, perfect observation. And I'm not suggest- suggesting at all that there is not a place for high quality leadership. Um, in fact, what my observation and, and others, uh, others as well is that the right system can take a pretty average leader and turn them into a rock star. And that actually is the, it's the history of the United States military. Um, and and Mohammed, you're absolutely right. You could des- you could design and install a terrific system of leadership or any other kind of system. Uh, but if leadership, the the individuals, if they are not modeling those behaviors, take the system, throw it out the window because right. it's it's, it's useless. Yeah. yeah. So um, just to show you how one organization that I looked at uh, how they approach that. Um, it's healthcare organization. Actually, I just mentioned it's, it's one of the safest hospitals in America. Um, when I was taking a tour and one of their senior leaders was spent a whole morning with me, um, she took me to a hallway where every Tuesday morning at exactly 7 a.m., the executive leaders of this organization gather and they it's a it's essentially a value stream map where they're, they're tracking strategic objectives, where they want to go. Um, and it's, it's all very well designed. You know, they, they do it for a specific amount of minutes every Tuesday morning. Don't be late. They never sit down. They stand up. But at the end of this hallway, um, my tour guide pointed this, you know, poster out to me. And there was um, eight or ten what she referred to as foundational behaviors. This is a hospital system, like I said, of almost 10,000 people. And um, everything is driven off of a value of respect. Well, they've identified these core foundational behaviors. They had them posted on a wall. And then she pointed out to me that there were various initials that had been you know, written on this poster and it's laminated. And, you know, I looked at it, you could see, you know, people's initial initials. She said, those 
uh, are the initials of our senior leaders who have said, this behavior is a weakness of mine and I want to improve this, this specific behavior. And here's my initial to tell the world, this is what I'm working on personally this year. I, I, I hope that they'll work on more than one once a year, but <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> so, but no, that's very good. Like uh, one of the things that we, we uh, strive to practice is vulnerability. And one thing that we have recognized is good leadership comes from leaders who are willing to be vulnerable. And by vulnerable, we're not talking about sharing your deepest, darkest secrets, right. but by taking ownership, and apologizing or uh, understanding your shortcomings and mm -hmm. being willing to share that with others that, hey, I'm not perfect, I messed mm -hmm. up and um, I, I wanna take ownership of that, that's on me. And that is probably one of the hardest things for accomplished leaders mm -hmm. to do is being able to come in and say, this is my weakness. Yep. So the fact that you said that that, that safest hospital has this uh, practice of doing is is really like hitting home with where we where we strive to uh, talk about the culture of love and the right behaviors yep. practiced right. by the leaders. Right, right. Frank, you were you were starting to say something, but I think you may have been on mute. I was. My kids are dancing, um, and <laughs> the other rooms around the house they're 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 playing over there. So I'm trying to balance that. No, I was just, I was just um, gonna kind of echo uh, what Muhammad said that you know it's a it's a good starting point and be and creating visibility around areas that you want to improve on I think is a valuable thing because there's accountability there for the employees right um, mm. and all, also the the patrons of the hospital system but I'm I'm wondering about employees and how um, how this type of leadership helps employees feel that empowerment and and what you've seen in these types of organizations where how will leaders um, work with their employees to continue to prove out through these behaviors, rules, and, and routines, the, the values that they're espousing? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so again, I'll, I'll use a couple of examples um, from, uh, from the book. So this healthcare organization I just referenced, um, they, um, they train their leaders very, very specifically to lead in very specific ways. So um, standard off the shelf, you know, definition of a great leader is someone who is a great problem solver. Yeah. Um, almost every book you read on leadership, you know, here's a great leader, they're a terrific problem solver. This hospital actually says, no, we do not want our leaders to be problem solvers because it violates the value of respect. So if I'm working for Jeff and he's the manager of a clinic and I'm, you know, a doctor or nurse or med tech or whatever, and I'm having a problem. If I come to Jeff and say, I'm having a problem, that's actually code for two two issues that Jeff was going to have to deal with. Number one, the routine is that Jeff, that is that I don't go to Jeff. If I'm coming to Jeff, it's symbolic of the fact that Jeff is not leading the way he's been trained to lead because he's supposed to be coming to me. He's supposed to be coming through my workstation on a regular basis to see how I am doing, to see if I have everything I need, to see if there's anything on the on my plate today that's going to stop me, hinder me, or slow me down from doing my work. So that would be the number one problem is that Jeff's supposed to be coming to me. Second of all, if I do bring a problem to Jeff, his job is to help me think through the problem, think about the scope of the problem, to uh, maybe talk with me, help me understand, uh, work with me to understand other people who may be impacted by that problem and various solutions. But his job is not to solve the problem for me because that's disrespectful to my basic underlying intelligence, my ability as a human being to think creatively and do problem solving. So he is yeah. he is trained not to solve my problem. 
It's interesting. I mean, I, the way we approach that and, and the, 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 the thinking that we utilize in Softway is we, we view that as sympathetic leadership where mm-hmm. someone is coming in and solving a problem for someone, which ultimately ends up stunting the growth and the, the development and the opportunities for that person, right? Yep. And so when you think about sympathy, typically you're thinking about that in, I have the best per, the, the person's best interest at heart. But in reality, you're actually mm-hmm. causing a disservice. A disrespect is a great yes. way to think about it right. because you brought them in to, to solve problems and now you're going ahead of them trying right. to do it for them in the name of being sympathetic instead right. of empowering them and yep. being empathetic to right. their situation by providing the solutions alongside of them. So that right. that's a great answer. Yeah. Well, I, um, again, I'll go back to my conversation with General McCaffrey because I, I asked him about that specific um you know, idea of who solves the problems. And he said, by rule, that's the word he used, by rule, the highest ranking officer in, on, on a mission, the highest ranking officer who is closest to the battle, he makes the decision of, of how to approach that battle. And he said, I have been in the White House Situation Room many times where we are watching a military mission in real time as it's happening through the magic of satellite communications. He said, we have virtually the exact same information as that officer that's on the ground. But he said, if you really wanna screw up the army and his language got very colorful, he said, if you really wanna screw up a mission, take that authority or that power away from that officer that's on the ground in the middle of that battle and bring it back to the White House. Wow. Yeah. So I have uh, some observations and maybe some input I'd love to seek from you from a healthcare standpoint. So in healthcare organizations, administrative leadership traditionally is not led by clinician background people. Is that correct? Like I, I believe from my research, I've understood that the administrative leadership, even up to the C-suite, they may not have come from the ranks of clinicians. Yeah, in that, the military, that... in the military, I see they come from, like you know, they grow from the ranks from the field. Right. So, um, is it, the the question I have is, if you have leadership in place in administration that don't have a clinician background, but yet are leading strategic decisions mm-hmm. for the direction of a hospital system and how they should be uh, growing or adapting or moving forward. And the clinicians who are the frontline workers in a hospital mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. are not, don't have a seat at the table mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or our voices are not even heard. How do we make sure that those organizations are high impact, high performing? Because I see that as a problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not the only one. Um, and um, I'm really not an expert in, in this, but I know that there's been a lot of research that's been done of, you know, who makes the better hospital CEO, the clinician or the peer administrator? Um, and I don't know that there's a hard answer to that. But I do know that there's a lot of work going on right now in the industry to merge um, the clinician with the peer administrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, it, it's, it's really a result of how the industry has evolved where, you know, back in the day, you know, when I was, you know, young, um, you know, you went to the, the local neighborhood doctor to get your annual physical or to get your, 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 you know, the, the, your, your arm stitched up or your head stitched up when you, you know, you fell off your bike and, you know, everybody knew the doctor because he was sort of a neighbor. I mean, he was the little, you know, one, one person office and they had a, you know, a, 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 a receptionist. Well, today, all those little offices have been bought out by larger organizations and the tendency is to tell the doctor, well, you just focus on being a doctor and we'll take care of everything else. And the doctors are now, or the clinicians now are beginning to kick back against that and saying, hey, wait a minute, we want, we need a, 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 a chair at the table. And there's actually um, processes in place and, and shared governance models that are in place that's actually bringing them to the table. Got it. So. Uh, talking about that, 
Um, so if clinicians, if there is a trend for clinicians merging with the administrative role, but they've been educated and their lifetime training is on being a clinician mm -hmm. and not have a lot of leadership or business or management training in their career, even in their continued education for that matter of fact, mm -hmm. how are organizations going to fill that void if, yeah. if they are trying to get clinicians to take on more administrative responsibilities? Yeah, well, um, I think the simple answer to that, and maybe it's just because I wrote the book, is when you've designed a system, you can train people to the requirements of the system. So this particular hospital that, I, that I'm referencing, they have an extraordinarily well-designed system that just happens to come from the Toyota, um, from the from the Toyota Motor Corporation. Um, 2001, 2002, they were the first healthcare system to adopt the Toyota production system, i.e. lean, and they are now the world's leader in the um, education and implementation of lean in healthcare. Um, they train hospitals all over the world in how to apply lean. But what they don't talk about too much um, and actually, one of their key executives wrote an endorsement from for the book, um, and she said, um, in fact, she does. She defines leadership as a system separate from a charismatic personality that can be measured, monitored, improved. So when you take a person and place them into a system, you can teach them the requirements of the system. And then their natural leadership ability, whether it be terrific or average, really can grow and multiply um, and, and, and have a tremendous impact. So this hospital that, I, that I've been referencing, uh, their CEO, he's now I think in his 22nd, third, fourth year as the CEO. Wow. Uh, when they formally, and, and he's, he's an MD, he's still a practicing um, uh, doctor. Um, he actually did his residency at this hospital. So he's been with them a really long time. Wow. wow. And um, uh, he was named as the CEO based on a democratic vote of, of, of the whole system, all of the yeah. doctors. And one of the first things he did was uh, in working with the board, he said, this democratic uh, idea of being the CEO has got to change. And so they, they appointed uh, Dr. Kaplan as the CEO. And he royally um, made most of his colleagues really angry. <laughs> and uh, but um, they took seriously uh, um, the the imperative of, of improving safety in not only their hospital but also lowering cost. And so they went radical at the time. It was a radical decision to adopt lean and the Toyota production system. Mm -hmm. But with that system came a management system, which they define as a leadership system that shows every leader, whether they be a clinician or a peer administrator, how to lead, how yeah. to engage with their staff. And so it's the system that drives the drives the performance of the individual leader. So I wanna I wanna challenge a little bit with the systems that we're referring to. I believe that COVID um, ha may have exposed some gaps in those systems mm -hmm. because while the systems are filled with rules and routines. Mm -hmm. As soon as the pandemic hit, these hospital systems were dealing with things that they'd never encountered before. Yep. And so at times, these systems and routines that are filled with rules can't immediately adapt or adjust to such radical change that maybe yep. we may be facing. Yep. And so in those cases, how do these systems that are set on these rigorous rules and routines how can a leadership or management team quickly adapt to this? Because we saw a lot of hospital systems crumble when it mm -hmm. came to COVID. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, there, I think there's a, it's a great question. 
And uh, invariably, when I talk to, uh, when I first started talking to people I knew and my friends about, you know, I'm doing this research as leadership as a system, invariably their first reaction was, well, is that a good idea? And some would say, because every leader has their own personal style and right. is it a good idea be, to be telling people how to lead? And uh, it, was a, it was a good question. And at the time I didn't have an answer for it. Um, but what I observed Actually, the simple answer is a plant right outside my backyard. So this plant normally has long and narrow leaves, but because I don't know anything about gardening, I put it in a place of shade. Well, today, if you look at that plant, it has long and wide leaves because it's learned to adapt to my air and, and being a dummy when it comes to gardening because <laughs> wider leaves lets it you know absorb the sunlight. So, Think about an organization, healthcare organization, 10,000 employees. By definition, they probably have somewhere between 900 and 1,000 leaders, somebody with some kind of leadership management ability. If everybody is leading based on their own personal profile, their own values, um, how easy is it to make a shift in something like COVID when it comes along, when everybody is leading based on their own kind of value system or where there's a common way of leading hmm. and then, oh, we need to be doing this other thing as well. And our, our value system respects people and we train people, we develop people to speak up when they see an issue. That's actually one of their words, speak up. It's one of their core foundational behaviors. We want people to speak up when they see an issue. So you've got this culture where people are not only free, but they're empowered to speak up. So they see an issue. Oh, we need to make sure. I actually had this conversation with one of their doctors Tuesday, exact same conversation. Um, uh, they're empowered to speak up. So one of the, the doctor I was talking to, he was quite proud of the fact that in their determination of who is going to get the COVID virus, uh, the vaccine, they're not going to make any distinction based on income, social status, equality, race, ethnics, whatever. In fact, he said, we have 250,000 people on the waiting list right now. He said, the computer system that we're going to use is going to randomly select those people so we can't make any distinction between who they are. Now, compare that to another hospital that is virtually right next door. Uh, last week, there was a huge issue. They, for some reason, thought it would be smart to uh, um, put out an email to 500 of their biggest donors that said, oh, by the way, because you're one of our donors, we're going to put you in the front of the line and we have a vaccine shot with your name on it. So that immediately hit the news, um, you know, lots of embarrassment, et cetera. And someone finally said, oh, I guess that wasn't very smart. And we really didn't mean to send out that email. So, you know, when you've got a system that says we value people, we value behaviors, we, we value ethics, we want people to speak up. My observation, it's a lot easier to change that kind of redirect, that kind of an organization right. as to opposed to an organization where everybody is leading based on their own idea of what's appropriate. Yeah. yeah. So uh, even in the organizations where there is like that unified structure, but say the pressures of uh, the realities around reimbursements to hospital mm -hmm. systems, they're shrinking mm -hmm. and the administrative leadership is having to make decisions saying, you know, patient to nurse ratio has to be reduced. Mm -hmm. Um, and we cannot have, you know, one nurse to six patients. We need to right. have one is to eight patients so that we can right. manage our budgets. Right. manager funding. Right. And at that moment in time, the nurses and the clinicians know that that's detrimental to the safety 
mm-hmm. of the patient experience mm-hmm. and the patient safety, but yet they're forced to comply, mm-hmm. even if they're able to speak up. Or if they are in a situation where PPE uh, equipment is told to them in COVID, you can reuse it mm-hmm. for a mm-hmm. week and go yeah. treat patients when they've been trained all their life right. saying that you have to change your PPE equipment. And here in COVID times, we're saying you can reuse it. Yeah. And they're being forced to do these things. Right. And it is against their training. It is yep. against their morality. Yep. Yep. Um, how do just systems and rules, because that's, that's really what they're doing. They're following the rules. And the rules are saying you should do this, whether you like it or not. So how do we make sure we manage the, the morality of these, these yeah. clinicians to the business needs or the rules yeah. that are being governed and set at yeah. the top? Yeah. Well, uh, I think there's a couple of things there. One is who's, who's making the rules. Um, mm-hmm. That actually is um, more important than the rules themselves is who's making them. Mm-hmm. So if the rule is coming out of a government agency, um, that's one thing. But if the rule is designed to support and enforce a culture of respect, now we're down to the level of, of, of you know, what's our relationship with our staff and our employees? And, and how do we develop them? So I, I'm sort of on the, the, the tangent of this one healthcare organization. So uh, you want me to move <laughs> yeah, on to another one? I'm, no, I'm actually enjoying the healthcare example. Okay. Yes, yeah, good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, this particular organization, um, and, and you know, let's be frank, every organization has, has rules and most of them are nonsense. Um, the, 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 you know, every organization has, you know, the written ones and those we all, we all need, but then the, the really important ones are the non-written rules. So um, this organization, um, when, because they put a value on their people as a resource, that can be developed both personally and professionally. Hmm. They're not, they, they don't, I don't, I could be wrong, but they don't put a lot of emphasis on like ratios. Um, what they do is they put emphasis on the process. And I actually, I asked the question to my, um, my, my host during this tour. I said, what happens when uh, someone comes along and says, well, we need more staff for this particular clinic. And um, she said, well, the first thing we do is we we ask them, okay, what kind of process improvement or lean initiatives have you done recently? And if they say, well, I haven't done any recently, they'll say, okay, by rule, you are a leader in this organization and your job by rule is to conduct one to three, personally conduct one to three process improvement or lean initiatives every year. Have you done one? Well, no, I haven't done one. Okay, well, that's the first problem. The second problem is um, they don't spend a lot of time talking about budgets. Mm. What they spend a lot of time talking about is things like, what's the per- what percentage of time do uh, are the nurses spending with patients? So in 2001, 2002, when they started this journey with Lean, Nurses were spending about 35% of their time actually with patients. Today, they're up around 90 or 95% of their time. And so by getting that kind of productivity uh, and, and focusing on value-added, serv- uh, value-added processes and, and everything that will extract waste out of their system, they actually end up putting more value back in for their patients. Hmm. So um, in two, in, during the recession of 2008, 2009, um, most hospitals in the country, if not the world, were was, you know, laying off people right and left. This hospital didn't lay off anybody. Mm. In fact, they continued to pay bonuses to the people who qualified for bonuses. And then as they do today, they still have some of the strongest financials in the industry. Nice. And they don't do it by fussing around with budgets. I've done a lot of work. Most of my consulting work, I I spend a lot of time with finance directors and they're all about budgets and a good leader, a good manager, or someone who, you know, is really good at controlling the budget. And um, uh, 
sometimes I just want to scream <laughs> um, because they're putting their emphasis on the wrong thing. Yeah. They need to be focusing on what's what value are we providing our customers and, and working with developing their financial resources like it was a resource that can right. be developed for value. You know, it, it. it sounds to, like the thing that I've, um, that I've been thinking a lot about as you've been talking, and I think this interesting kind of segue into this unique experience that you've seen in this healthcare, it's definitely not the norm, right? There's definitely right. going to be organizations out there that are, that are unfortunately weaponizing the rules in mm -hmm. order to get people where they need to go without being, without yep. being uh, flexible. Yep. Um, but, but that the question you asked a little while ago, and somehow we've already been speaking for an hour, which is insane, but it's also wonderful. Um, <laughs> what is you, the question you asked is what do we want our employees to experience? And I, and I think that's such a unique takeaway from this conversation. Like that one question is such a unique, like a thing to think about regardless of industry mm -hmm. is as a leader, you should be thinking about that question yep. of what do we want our employees to experience and then yep. creating an, a culture around the employee experience because yep. the output of that employee experience is better productivity. It's a better end product, whether that's patient care or a better piece of technology or widget or whatever it is. Right. And, right. and so that, that to me is, 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 was a very special question that I'm going to continue to think about on a daily basis. Great. Yeah. You know, um, I'll get off the healthcare kick for a moment. So there is a <laughs> there is a Ford dealership in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I don't know where they're at right now with this number, but um, for the last several years, they have been either ranked as either the number one Ford dealership in the world to work for, or they've been right at it. Wow. You know, out of 5,000 Ford dealerships, they are the number one Ford dealership to work for. Um, and if they're not number one, they're, they're like right behind number one. Um, their pay, their patient, their customer satisfaction scores far out surpassed, you know, the traditional Toyota, Honda, you know, Nissan, uh, you know, Mercedes Benz, et cetera. Um, and they're a Ford dealership. Um, but they make that, that workforce experience strategic and mm -hmm. they measure it every year. And they have they have built that experience of the workforce right into their strategy. In fact, it's a central component of of their business strategy is that engagement of, and experience of their workforce. And um, they, I, I think, out of the last twenty five years, I may get this not exactly right, but I like that last twenty five or twenty six years, they have been uh, given the Ford's President's Award like. 21 years, which is the highest award that Ford gives out to their dealership dealerships. Um, and um, they, they lack nothing in profitability. They lack nothing in car sales. Um, and oh, by the way, they are closed on Sundays because they want their employees to be with their family on Sundays rather than in the car dealership selling cars. Hmm. Something I, I, I learned uh, very recently uh, from one of my uh, mentors and advisors is that there's a difference between employee satisfaction mm -hmm. and employee engagement. Right. And employee satisfaction is benefited from the policies and the, pro, you know, the rules. Right. And if those are set up really well, then the employee can have satisfaction, whether that's pay scales, processes, right. Right. rules and stuff. Engagement, on the other hand, is experienced from their immediate boss and their yep. supervisor. Yep. But if you don't have employee satisfaction, it doesn't matter how good your boss is, you will not have the engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that I think is making a case for what you just brought up, this whole topic about systems as a system, mm -hmm. leadership as a system to get mm -hmm. the highest impact out of your organization and your teams. And I can see now the importance of making sure that the employee satisfaction is set through their system and then the engagement is uh, to the people-to-people -people interaction, but without the proper system, right. you can't experience engagement, no matter right. how good your immediate boss is. Right, right. Yeah, I think you, may, you, you probably can on a very small scale, 
I mean, if, if the four of us, you know, were working together, you know, we could sort of, you know, have a high degree of, of engagement. Um, but as soon as we go up to 400 or 4,000 or 40,000 or 4 million, now you need some kind of a system that's going to coach, teach, train every leader and, and, and how to do it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, time has surely flied and... <laughs> I, I, I want to thank by really showing some appreciation here for Dan. Dan, thank you for joining us and sharing about your book and your experiences and your wisdom. Thank you so much for that time. Honored. Thank Muhammad you. Frank, thank you as always for joining in this conversation. It was a great one. You know, when we hear about, you know, I love the dichotomy of kind of our conversation here. When you hear the term system, you kind of have this like thought of rigid, unmoving, kind of cold um, elements. And I love that contrast and opening it up and seeing as how there's room for the warmth of love mm -hmm. within systems and around systems and building systems in and out of love. So this was a great eye-opening conversation for all of us. It was a wonderful conversation. So thank you again, Dan. And uh, for the audience here at Love is a Business Strategy, we are posting new episodes every Tuesday. And if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd love for you to give us that feedback leave a review, subscribe. You can see us at softway.com slash labs, L-A-A-B-S. And please uh, tell us what you'd like to hear about next and share it with a friend. So with that, I will see you guys next week and we'll talk soon. Bye.